You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcasts, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is episode number 83, Current Trends in Pharma and How They Will Affect You as a Statistician, an interview with Richard Zink. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician Podcast. Uh, I'm today here again with my co-host Benjamin. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing? Hi, Alexander. Yeah, very well. Yeah, it's um, coming back from vacation, so fully recovered from all the stress. So it's been been nice. Yeah, recovered. You, you probably had more stress with your kids than at at, at work. So <laughs> it's, a, it's it's a different way of stress. Yeah, sometimes you know you 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 go away from the kids to go to work, and that's that's fine in a way. And sometimes you're looking forward to come back home uh, to go away from work. So it's kind of <laughs> no, no. But it was very good. It was very nice. We've been up north in Sweden, and it's been out in the nature. It's quite different to living in Berlin and the stress in the city in the middle of the huge city so it's been really really good okay awesome and today we have a fellow podcaster with us hi richard how are you doing hey guys how's it going uh thanks for having me on okay very good so actually benjamin and myself have been on richard richard's podcast um more than a year ago before we started And um, that was very nice. And so now we can offer the return. So Richard is uh, on our podcast, which is which is awesome. And um, as Richard has also taken over the chair of the ASA Biofarm uh, um, group, um, we will talk today about trends in the industry and how it will or may affect us statisticians. And so, but before we dive into that, Richard, maybe you can give a little bit uh, of background for yourself and um, especially in terms of what are your goals for your um, tenure as a chair, as well as maybe you can promote your podcast a little bit because if people don't have yet stumbled upon your podcast, they should do that. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, I'm Richard Zink. I am the 2019 chair of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Uh, and within that group, I also have some other roles. I've been doing um, the podcast for the biopharmaceutical section uh, since mid-2012. Um, so we don't post as often um, as the effective statistician. Uh, we, we average uh, one episode per month, but we try to focus on topics specific to um, initiatives within the ASA, but also uh, some trends or, or, or various topics that are important for statisticians working in the, the medical product industry. So this can be Anything from estimates, um, data sharing, um, and transparency, um, issues for statistical programming, data quality. Um, and this year we've had a lot of topics, uh, particular to oncology, uh, development. So, uh, immunotherapies, um, platform trials, and 
we have an episode coming up on um, non-proportional hazards and methodologies to address that. Um, so I'm not working directly within the pharmaceutical industry, and I haven't for some time. I, I started outside of school uh, working uh, in the pharmaceutical industry for about eight years, uh, and then I made it over to SAS where I wrote software uh, for uh, seven years um, and software that was specific to analyzing and visualizing data in clinical trials. And now I'm at um, Target Pharma Solutions where I'm the Senior Director of Data Management and Statistics. And we're uh, what you might call in the, in the simplest way possible, a, a real-world data company. So we develop patient cohorts for specific diseases, and we work with uh, pharmaceutical companies developing in those disease areas to answer questions about um, the disease itself and, and sort of the life cycle of the disease and, and see how the various treatments uh, may come into play and how they may be used once they reach the market. So uh, definitely a lot of learning involved, and uh, it's, it's pretty exciting to see how this interest in, in data outside of clinical trials can be used um, to answer questions of regulatory importance. Awesome. Very good. Yeah, I think there we have a couple of things in common because both Benjamin and myself, we have worked on uh, these non-clinical studies, I would call them, in, in, in lots of different ways. And it's, uh, it's, it's probably, diving directly into the topic, it's probably one of the big trends um, that is increasing the use of real-world evidence and the, the FDA initiative about real-world evidence. Richard, where do you think is the, where do you see the, biggest use of real-world evidence in, in that setting? Because there's, often there's just this buzzword about RWE and that will solve all kind of different problems. But I think I, I'm maybe a little bit more cautious and would say there's specific problems where RWE can play a significant role, but it will not make RCTs redundant, for example. Sure. And I, I think all of the excitement around real-world data um, and real-world evidence. And I, I tend to prefer the, the term real-world data um, because, you know, what you do with it determines whether or not, um, and the questions you ask determine whether or not it actually turns into some kind of evidence. But I, I, I think there certainly are uh, places where it can be used. I don't necessarily think it's going to... Uh, make clinical trials uh, vanish per se. Uh, but there may be certain ways in which we can use um, real-world data information even within clinical trials. So I certainly think, you know, anytime you have questions about how a drug or therapy is going to be used um, sort of in the real-world setting, um, this certainly... Uh, places where uh, real-world data uh, can be very informative. And I think what we've seen um, in, in some of the data that we've been able to collect and analyze, uh, there are recommendations for how patients may be treated um, or should be treated depending on the severity of disease or the, the types of their disease. And 
when you look at how various physicians may um, apply treatments um, uh, in line with any treatment guidelines, that there may be uh, quite a few differences there and, and, and why those differences may, be, may exist. Um, certainly, um, it's certainly interesting why that, that may happen um, and, and trying to understand why that may happen um, is certainly something that we should do. Um, certainly understanding uh, populations that may not enter into clinical trials, um, there's a lot of patients who are naturally excluded from clinical trials because of either the severity of their disease or uh, other comorbidities they may be having. Uh, they may be taking other medications that uh, won't let them participate. Um, but certainly having information on patients um, from a real-world experience uh, does provide uh, some of the only safety or efficacy information we may have on, on certain populations. Um, so we do a lot of, we focus on a lot of diseases uh, in the liver uh, and often patients who may uh, have had liver transplants um, or have severe uh, decompensated cirrhosis, they may be excluded from clinical trials and uh, looking at data from medical records or, or claims databases may be our only opportunity to really understand how patients may be benefiting um, from these therapies. So, but but of course, it would only be relevant for the comparator uh, efficacy. Uh, that's already you know the comparator in the clinical trials that is already approved, not the new experimental therapy because that you can have only in clinical trials, isn't it? Well, yeah, ab absolutely. Um, that that's the case, but yeah. I'm, so I'm assuming I'm making that assumption that a, a drug has made it to market um, and, and has uh, been on the market to understand how the patients um, are experiencing it. So certainly, uh, in an earlier setting, we may may not have that information available um, for those patients um, in these interesting populations. Though we may try to uh, include them in the clinical trial population. Um, Where would you see actually advantages of using real-world data before the first approval of, of the new therapy? Uh, well, there, there's some different approaches. Uh, so particularly uh, in very severe diseases, uh, oncology, for example, uh, oftentimes uh, in earlier phases we see instances where um, – We're working with single-arm clinical trials, um, and there has been um, discussions of methodologies using uh, historical data um, to sort of have a, a benchmark for uh, in a more rigorous way of, of doing comparisons to some sort of benchmark by, by using data from past clinical trials uh, that may have been conducted to see if the, the, the results we're seeing in a current clinical trial may be effective. Um, but there's also this idea that, um, and, and I think it goes by many names, um, synthetic um, control arm, for example, where we do use, uh, potentially use some sort of data um, from the real world where the the timing of that data is obtained um, more contemporaneously uh, to the ongoing clinical trial. Um, so the assumptions with looking at historical data, 
um, there could naturally be changes in the population. There could be changes in medical mm. practice over time that can af- affect that comparison that we're that we may be doing uh, with historical data. So, the idea if we could potentially use some real world cohort. Um, to collect information and use as a comparator um, in a clinical trial um, or as a comparator, a real-world control arm to a comparator in a clinical trial, um, we could potentially do that. And there may also be interest in, in looking, um, <clears throat> even if there is a control arm available, um, seeing how a, a, a real-world arm may uh, perform uh, compared to the arm that's in a con- clinical trial. Uh, I think other situations where real-world data may be used, and you know, this may depend on how you like to define things, I, I, I think certainly with all of the devices that are now available um, to be used in the, in the clinical trial space, whether this is a smartphone or a wearable device um, or using uh, a, your glucose monitor uh, in type 2 diabetes. Uh, I've seen w- that these kinds of data have been naturally lumped into real-world data um, just because they're being sort of collected by some device uh, that's on the patient and, and not measured, say, by a physician in the um, in the office. So um, that really depends on how you define things, but um, that's also one potential use of real world data. And and I think for other questions around design uh, of trials, you know, trying to understand um, background rates of events or, or, or background rates of certain populations of patients and how likely uh, certain um, outcomes may uh, occur uh, in the disease population, uh, and also just the geographic location of where patients may reside. That certainly helps uh, with design aspects uh, of clinical trials. And I think real-world data um, and, and analyzing medical records or claims databases can certainly be used to 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 better pinpoint where these patients may um, exist um, throughout the U.S. and the rest of the world. Yeah, I see that this is this is really a trend also coming in the industry from different sources, like the data itself and, and the requests. Also, uh, see it in our company that we've been asked to to deal with um, real world data. So we call it still a real world evidence. But so, but what? Let's just speaking for statisticians. So, what does that change for statistician? I mean, we. We all know the classical statistician, the skill set of a statistician with statistical analysis type of things and programming skills and so on. So what, what does the, the, um, the trend towards real world data have for an impact for us as a statistician? That's a good question. And, um, I, I think there, there are a number of ways to answer it. I, I think certainly the data that, um, we may get from real world sources uh, may not necessarily have the same sort of what we think of as data cleanliness. Um, that there's certainly um, quality issues that could be uh, observed in these kinds of data. And if you've ever tried to take a look at some of the um, the post marketing um, data from the the FDA, the the FAERS data set that they uh, 
release, I think, quarterly um, to show uh, adverse events that patients may experience on different drugs. Um, there's certainly uh, the information. There's a lot of missingness. There's a lot of um, inconsistencies and in, in how things um, are reported. So there certainly is a lot more work, I think, that's involved in trying to analyze these data and, and make sense of them. Um, it, it, it certainly has made me uh, wish for the days of um, the simplicity of the data in clinical trials. Um, <laughs> and and, I, and I, I complained quite a bit about data quality uh, when I was working in clinical trials. So I never thought I would uh, <laughs> get there. But um, I also think that... Um, you know, one of the challenges uh, in a real-world setting. Uh, so if we're working in a clinical trial, we have a very clear visit structure. That visit structure uh, documents what sorts of procedures are going to be conducted, and those procedures are often conducted whether or not the patient really needs to have them conducted or not. So, you know, when we get to the end of the trial, um, you know, we sort of have all of our buckets. And if data isn't available, um, you know, we, we can go into this whole missing data problem. Um, but in the real world, you, you know, data can come haphazardly. Um, some individuals maybe tr go to the physician more frequently than others. Uh, they may have different procedures uh, that are performed um, than others. So all of these questions about having things sort of lined up in nice, neat little um, rows, um, it, it makes the analysis uh, a bit more complex and, and trying to understand, you know, um, what's the frame of reference you're trying to measure from uh, to, to understand different effects. Um, and certainly I think the question about missing data um, uh, you know, we tend to think about missing data a lot uh, as in, in the pharmaceutical industry and the idea that if you say that you're supposed to record things at every visit and it's not recorded, you can certainly think of this as missing. Um, but if individuals don't have their lab tests taken, for example, and a lot of other individuals do at, at certain time points, saying that this is sort of missing from our traditional understanding of it in the pharmaceutical industry, I don't think makes um, quite a bit of sense. Um, so I think there's those kinds of challenges. Um, there's certainly challenges if there's multiple data sources uh, in trying to link that information um, together, um, if, if it's at all possible, either using methods that can take advantage of patient's health information, or if that's not available, um, using probabilistic methods to, to link different data sources, say, if we're talking about um, claims databases or, or, or death databases or, or some other sorts of data um, that may or may not be available. Um, but I think from the analysis side, um, you know, certainly the, the challenge is, is trying to account for the fact, uh, particularly when we're comparing groups, that there there is this lack of randomization. And all of the different analysis methods are, are way of analyzing observational data. Um, just even thinking about propensity scores, you can 
match patients, you can stratify the analysis, you can use uh, inverse probability weighting. Um, and there's a lot of different approaches to analyzing the data. And, and I think that um, certainly adds to the challenge that, you know, we may not have spent a lot of time thinking about um, in the clinical trial space. Isn't it also that, that the structures in, the, in a study setting is then also com like com not completely, but a little bit different? When just talking about devices, um, so if the data is being collected by using devices, then for example, usually the steps would skip completely the data management type. So that, that the data basically has been put into a file and hasn't, you know, there's no chance in, in querying, there's no chance in, in just, you know, getting um, what you said, that under the quality or cleanliness of the, of the data to improve this data management. So this is this also like a piece where the statistician or programming needs to think differently in terms of, uh, uh, let's, let's call it self-evident changes or self-evident um, you know, in, in, um, implementations uh, into the data? Yeah, and I, I think certainly there are... Depending on the source, there may be opportunities to query, but I, they, they may be limited. But certainly there may be um, questions that are sort of self-evident, as you say, uh, in terms of the analysis. And there may be uh, assumptions that you have to make um, that are uh, hopefully conservative that um, you would take in the analysis and certainly document um, prior to doing the analysis. Um, and, I, you know, you brought up issues about querying. There, there are a number of challenges just with um, the data uh, itself. Um, so, you know, some of the data may be in a format um, where we're able to, to make use of it sort of straight away. But um, there, there, there is a lot of free text uh, that's available in real-world data and, and certainly methodologies around um, text mining and then natural language processing can can help out with that but still it's a it's a it's a pretty challenging problem because ideally what you want to be able to capture you know whether or not somebody had uh, a particular event um, uh, accurately um, you know being able to do that in a re in a reproducible way um, can be challenging um, and there are you know, challenges also just with dates and, and temporality of things. You know, you may have something in the medical record that says a, a particular event happened between uh, two dates or two months ago, and uh, um, uh, you may need to make some assumptions about, you know, what that date may actually be um, without having that explicit date written down um, in the documentation. So, Documenting all these rules and, and, and how you may try to make the data complete is, is certainly important um, for you know doing things in a methodical way. So in terms of um, these kind of things, I think there is a, this isolation that we had in the past in people that work on clinical trials and people that work on real-world evidence and, and observational data. My perception is this is going away. There's a, both worlds need to learn from each other. Both worlds need to get closer to each other. Um, we need to be 
learning much more about epidemiological approaches. We need to be learning much more about um, extrapolation, interpolation, uh, these kind of things. Um, we can't rely just on the randomization anymore. We need to, you know, uh, we need to model more the data. There's, there's a lot of different things that um, are now coming up. And um, I think it's a, it's a great great time for statistician because these are already all really really interesting challenges to have and um, there's a lot of values that we can provide but it just requires us to step outside of our let's say traditional area and learn other techniques other approaches um there's a couple of things that 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 you mentioned um you mentioned this um matching of different data sources. I think that is also an in interesting trend because there's this trend of uh big data that we are, you know, that there's more and more data becoming available. Um and that uh, then you need to kind of get data from that source and that source and that source. And of course you don't have you know, your unique subject identifier in all of these. And you mentioned these uh, probabilistic matching, which I think is a really, really interesting uh, area in itself. Can you speak a little bit to, to what that means? Sure. Um, and, and, and to your point about um, epidemiologists, um, uh, the, the few that I've talked to, in, including my coworker who, um, you know, this whole idea of real world data. Um, I think they kind of laugh about it because they've been doing these kinds of things for years. And it's, it's only now that statisticians within the pharma industry um, and sort of within clinical development are, are trying to, to get the, the skills needed and trying to understand and these different methodologies. And yeah, I, I certainly think it, it can break down silos. So so the, the the question about um, the probabilistic matching is certainly an interesting one. Um, so yeah, you're certainly right. Oftentimes um, we don't have uh, information of the patient to, to necessarily compare them um, from one to match data from one database to another. Um, but there's certainly some approaches you can take. Um, you know, if there there is the potential to overlap with with different information. Um, so, for example, if you had access to a, a patient's medical record, um, you could certainly derive, um, you know, there may be information about when certain medications a patient may take, or there there may be information about when a, a patient may be going to the doctor's office, um, and at least within the U.S., with insurance companies, there's certain claims that may be filed um, to pay for these activities uh, at the doctor's office. Um, so using information about geographic location, for example, um, and uh, information such as gender uh, and the timing of different visits, uh, you can, uh, between different data sets, um, uh, identify records that sort of line up with a, a certain high probability uh, that these records may be, uh, in fact, from that individual. Um, and there, there are some papers um, 
where uh, companies have done this uh, probabilistically matching, um, and they they have had uh, data uh, available uh, from some of the a subset of the patients uh, to to know in fact when correct matches uh, did occur. Um, they were able to use some of these probabilistic matches and, and with a high degree of certainty um, connect data across these different data sources. Uh, um, and in a similar way, um, they report it similar to how you would think about it in, in terms of a, um, oh, a predictive model sort of validating um, the methodology for matching. And uh, in situations where they do have you know, the matches where they're known, um, they can report on the effectiveness of this. So uh, there are some papers about that. Um, um, and these are certainly things we're looking uh, at as well. Um, because, you know, certain data sources, um, depending on the types of information, one data source may have greater granularity than another data source. Um, and you can certainly get a richer uh, analysis with access to these kinds of data. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the other point that we shortly touched on, and I think that we should expand a little bit more on, is um, the data that is coming from devices, and especially variables, you know, um, smartwatches, smartphones, uh, whatsoever. And um, my perception is one of the most interesting areas in, in that regard is uh, possibly the um, diabetes area and, and things around it because mm-hmm. there's so much data collected there. You know, um, there's sometimes there's so much data collected um, that you can't even store it, but it's basically you need to kind of right. analyze it on the fly and uh, then just retain, you know, uh, certain characteristics of the data, but not kind of all data points. So, and then gives us completely different struggles how to deal with data. And I think that goes a little bit into, this is then really big data because it's very fast. It's it's very voluminous. It is uh, lots of different variety and um, something that we haven't dealt with as uh, statisticians in the past. Yeah, it, so I think there is a certain benefit to it. So you mentioned the uh, the the example of type two diabetes. So I think the way it works generally in in clinical trials, um, an individual will go to the physician. The physician will take the blood test, and they'll look at the HbA1c to see how the, the patient is faring. Um, so if you're able to, to use a device um, and, and monitor the patient's glucose over time, you can really see the effects of how that, how the glucose changes with um, patients taking the medication, how it may change um, when the patient eats, um, uh, how much they rest or exercise. Um, so there's all these different ways in which you can see in real time how the patient is responding uh, to the therapy and, and, and sort of what's going on in day-to-day life. Um, but you're right, it, it, it does create this problem of volume. And um, in talking um, in one of the, our podcasts about this, um, um, 
individuals from Eli Lilly, they um, talked about uh, analyses of these types of data. And, you know, if you are in a situation where the data may remain constant, say for a certain period of time, you may decide that, well, you're only going to record and store uh, when a change occurs, for example. Um, So instead of having, say, if you were to measure every 20 seconds or every second, and the value in a lot of instances is identical, um, and having to store all of those individual data points, you may decide that, well, I'll only measure it or record it when it changes, and then the assumption will be that that data point is essentially what it was prior um, through this certain period of time. Um, so you, you've changed how the data has been collected. And certainly in, in analysis, analyses of um, genomic databases, for example, any, any instances where you may have sort of constant areas of the genomes uh, that may not add anything to the statistical analysis, sort of as a, a first step, you can sort of delete those um, areas uh, from consideration for doing your analysis. So I think we certainly have to think about the data in a different way. So, you know, if we're used to collecting a data point, um, you know, doing a test and, and collecting that individual data point and, and storing it in a data set, uh, when we have access to near continuous information, um, we we certainly need to think differently about how to store that information, uh, particularly in a way that makes it easy to analyze. Um, um, So the example with the type 2 diabetes is certainly one way that um, we can simplify that storage uh, of the information. Um, And and there's probably uh, a number of other ways um, to to simplify that for uh, the various devices. And, um, but I think ultimately, you know, trying to know what data we need to collect, we, we, we first have to understand the, the question of what we're trying to answer. And then potentially we can limit to those data that will really answer the, the question that we're trying to ask. Yeah, I think the, uh, what's the interesting um, aspect is that it allows completely different definitions of endpoints that we have never thought about before. Because, um, for example, you could measure um, hypoglycemic events much, much better and much more precise and uh, have lots of different uh, definitions about that you could you can analyze. This as, um, you could analyze kind of um, uh, post-exercise blood samples in a different way. You could, you know, look at your um, population in a very, very different way when you have um, these tests um, at baseline already for, for, don't know, the last months or something like this. You can understand much better kind of what are actually comparable patients and you could adjust for these and uh, by therefore improving your precision and maybe coming up with completely new subgroups for, for um, which, you know, one therapy is better than the other. So I think there's a lot of new ways um, we can come up with. We can, you know, ask completely different questions to, to our data. And I think that's, that's really fascinating. The other thing is um, understanding such rich data 
also, I think, requires new ways of looking into the data from a statistical point of view. So, and there's these, um, there's, I think, the, the rise of artificial intelligence is, is coming into play because then, of course, you can use these data to change your treatment, you know, to, to increase dosing, decrease dosing, um, have these kind of uh, learning systems and sets and pose completely new questions of, you know, how you set up your clinical trials um, and and lots of other things. But but I think first, even understanding these rich data sets um, requires, you know, different techniques than, uh, than we, what we have seen in the past. So reducing dimensionally, uh, for example, things like that. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about um, you know it, it, it changes the the endpoints in, in subtle ways, and certainly I think one of the challenges with you know how we may collect data and, and analyze endpoints in a clinical trial, if we want to take advantage of real world data sources, you know we may not have the granularity to define the endpoints um, in exactly the same way that. They were defined within a clinical trial, but we may get something that may be close, uh, for example. Um, so th- that does add an... Or maybe even something that is better than is a usual clinical sure, trial. Sure, you know, if- Yeah, the example with the, um, the, the, the type 2 diabetes certainly, it certainly seems like it would be um, a better way of collecting uh, information, but... Yeah, exactly. The, but the, the the consistency of the endpoints um, uh, and taking that into consideration when doing the analysis, um, yeah, it, it's certainly something that has to be thought about. Um, and you know, there may not be something comparable um, in a real world data source, and you, you may have you may find that you have to try to approach the problem in a way that that answers the question, um, but not to how we've done it um, in the past uh, in a clinical trial, for example. Just just looking a little bit to the same topic from a different side. I mean, we talk now from the eyes of a statistician, but, you know, just generally in the um, in the area of real-world evidence, is there any any other trends or any other changes currently than ongoing or expected from, for example, the regulatory side? Well, I certainly think... Um, that's a work in progress. So the FDA released um, sort of their framework for for real world data at the end of last year, uh, and they have released um, a guidance document on submitting real world data to um, to the agency. Um, but I think there are some interesting tidbits in these documents. Uh, so if you if you do look at the at the uh, the, the FDA sort of framework for real world evidence, um, you know the first thing that they reference uh, in terms of real world evidence is uh, this ability to do pragmatic trials and, and still maintain the benefits uh, of having randomization. So um, this is. Perhaps an underutilized area of um, study design. So, the really what we're trying to do is design very nearly observational study, but um, maintain that benefit of randomization um, 
either patients to treatment, um, um, whether or not it's blinded or not, but um, taking advantage of, of that benefit of randomization for the analysis and limiting bias and, and, and things of that nature. Um, so I, I found that pretty interesting about the document. Um, and the document also discusses the, this idea of data quality. Um, so whether the, the, the data are, are fit for purpose to, to be analyzed. And, you know, there may be certain questions where you, you may not be able to use uh, real-world data sources um, depending on the, the complexity of the question. Um, uh, but there may be only, there may be certain circumstances where these are the best data available to answer the question. So I think trying to understand all of these different examples um, of what's appropriate and, and, and what's possible um, will certainly be interesting. Um, I talked with uh, an FDA statistician uh, from CDRH uh, last week at, at JSM, and, and they mentioned uh, a company uh, trying to submit a, a meta-analysis to address one of the regulatory questions. So just pulling... Um, effect estimates from different manuscripts where devices were used and, and try to use this in a, in a real world data sense. Um, but these aren't the individual data tied to the, to the patients. And I, I don't think that was necessarily acceptable to them. Um, so I think just gaining this experience, gaining, uh, trying to understand uh, examples uh, where it's appropriate and, you brought up artificial intelligence and machine learning, and I think this is certainly um, an area that's going to be important as well. Um, you know, I think uh, in the past, you know, we've had uh, physicians reading um, uh, different uh, sorts of um, clinical documents, uh, but I think we're getting to a point where algorithms can read um, uh, CT scans, for example, and, and read them in a way that's very effective and, and more reproducible. Um, abilities to pull um, structured data out of um, uh, medical records uh, and make better use of unstructured data in a, in a reproducible way. Um, I certainly think from a data perspective, all of these things will be very important and, and sort of using these methods to predict outcomes, um, whether or not patients are um, likely to have a relapse or, or, or likely to um, have their disease worsen. Um, being able to ask these kinds of questions, I think will certainly involve a lot of uh, sophisticated modeling techniques um that can use a wide variety of data um and yeah and so there's actually this complete data science topic coming in isn't it so so there is this um we are seeing people that are recruited into the uh, pharmaceutical industry as data science scientists and they have very different backgrounds and let's say the, the typical biostatistician and i as Sometimes they sit in the same organization. Sometimes they sit in very, very different remote organizations. So, um, 
but but I think it would benefit a lot when these groups would actually work closer together, would more learn from each other, because I'm I'm pretty sure both both sides can learn from each other. There's um uh there's a lot of things that you know uh that we have as biostatisticians maybe have thought through very, very carefully and lots of discussions with regulators and, and back and forth and where, you know, maybe on the data science side, there hasn't been this kind of um, discussion going on back and forth uh, between regulators and, and, and the companies. Um, whereas they, you know, come from a very, very different point of view and are uh, using all kind of different data to um, answer a question and maybe, you know, dig more deeper into the data are willing to use different approaches to at least come up with some answer um, rather than saying, well, we don't have the data for the perfect answer, so we don't answer it at all. So, I, and I think there's the other point that... Um, Analytics is used much more broadly now in the business. So, so it's not just for, for clinical trials. Um, there's much more data and analytics usage in, in marketing and sales and manufacturing. There was all, all, already for decades, you know, a lot of analytics, but these, I think there, there's more and more this, uh, understanding that data is an asset beyond just clinical trials and these kind of traditional sources and that we can learn from much more kind of data-driven companies like Google and Amazon and how they use data to in, in everyday decisions uh, for their business. So, and I think that's another opportunity for statisticians um, to step out of the clinical trial world and the, let's say, medical record world and uh, pharmacokinetics and dynamics and, and let's say these more classical biological uh, background data into business data and um, yeah these new data sources which I found uh, really really interesting yeah I, yeah again I, I think the siloing of all of these different kinds of expertise is un unfortunate because I do think there are things to learn uh, from people, um, you know, in, in the different methodologies, but also in, in different approaches. Um, you know, just even taking a question, something simple like trying to to figure out a, you know, what covariates you would consider for a for a model or a prediction exercise. Somebody might, you know, one skill set may say, well, I'll throw in everything, not knowing what's important. But another skill set may say that, well, you know, what you're considering in the model, we should have some sort of understanding that, you know, there is this relationship uh, of these two variables, um, the, the covariates and the endpoint. Um, so we don't want to just necessarily throw everything in, in the model, um, particularly if we, you know, try to validate it and test it that, you know, the fit won't be very good. So trying to, you know, learn from each other and identify the best approaches, um, I think is certainly a better way to go than to, to isolate all of these different quantitative people and, and 
in different parts of the company. Um, Alexander mentioned that that the you know that there uh, it's, it's quite a new field or maybe a different field for for the classical statistician. But maybe one last question, like for my side at least, is like, what could statisticians then do to prepare for these new trends or the changes that are coming along with this? Do you have any any recommendation or anything that just in a nutshell or what could be topics to pick up or you know, things that statisticians could think about or change? That's a good question. And you know, and I, I, I try to think back to, to some of my training um, when I started as a grad student. So I had a linear models class, probably similar to most statisticians. And then I think we had one exercise um, where You know, using a linear model, trying to identify the best linear model, you know, using this set of covariates and potentially considering interactions and, um, you know, quadratic terms, so on and so forth. But, you know, when you try to say, you know, that is sort of the, the first step, you know, a lot of these other kinds of methodologies that we're talking about with machine learning and artificial intelligence. They're just different types of models. They may be more complex. Um, and we may even find out, you know, if we were to run a bunch of different types of models that, you know, the, the simplest model may, you know, actually be the most interpretable um, and, and, and give us, you know, the greatest insight. So, but just starting from that idea that, you know, we find a model and there may be approaches that we want to take to, to explore uh, more complex model, models, whether they're tree-based and um, carts, uh, you know, one methodology and, and the various flavors of uh, random forests that go into it. Um, and then there's certainly uh, the neural network type models. Um, but I think there there are some good books that, you know, can give pretty reasonable um, discussion about all of these different types of models. But I think at the end of the day, um, they're just different flavors of models and they require a lot of the same different techniques to, you know, assess the fit of them um, and see which model uh, among the sea of models may be the best. And it, it may turn out that you may need to use, um, several of the models um, to get the best prediction and sort of a, in a, an ensembling effect. Um, but even with all of these powers and all of these different models um, and some of them allowing you to use nonlinear combinations of covariates, uh, there's a lot of limitations in them. Um, you, you, you can't talk about things in, a, in covariates um, in much the same way than you can with some of the classical models and try to explain effects for, for different changes of um, the effects, but uh, in the end point for, for different changes in the, uh, the, the covariates in the model, it's, it's a lot less straightforward. So I, I think it is possible for people to learn these techniques and, and, and get a good idea. Um, and there are some intro texts that I think are very good um, to do that yeah one of my favorite books in that regard is uh, the elements of statistical learning um and i'll yep, that's a great yeah and i'll put a link to that book into the show notes um 
it's I think there's a couple of editions and probably there's also now some similar books with R codes and then things like that in there. But but from a kind of just learning the understanding the methods, learning the foundations, I think that's a great book. And then you can probably uh, add some R books to to that. Um, I, we we have covered a lot of different topics. I think there's um, one other topic that I would like to to mention, and that is um, prices prices for treatments. I think just just recently we saw the approval of the most expensive uh, treatment ever, and uh, so there is. Um, of course, no endless budget for, for therapies uh, in our area. And so, um, Richard, where do you think that this will, will have an impact on, on us as being statisticians? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I Going back to the uh, useful books, I think the one you mentioned uh, was really good. Um, there's one for Jump Pro called Fundamentals of Predictive Analytics that I, I think is also uh, very good. And it brings in a lot of data, visual as- data visualization aspects to, to understanding all these different models. Um, but to your question with um, pricing of treatments, it, it's certainly a um, it's certainly a record that we seem to keep beating that it, it it isn't one that's worth beating. Um, I think every year we have an example of a, of a new treatment that um, causing everybody to question whether or not, you know, the costs justify um, the, the benefits they are to provide to people. And I'm not sure what some of the, I, I don't know if I know what the best answers are to that. Um, certainly we, we see these situations with um, platform trials and um, trying to, you know, potentially explore therapies from different companies within sort of the same space and making use of, you know, a single control arm. That that may be one possibility. I think certainly taking advantage of some of the real-world data that's available to, to answer um, sort of some of the more easier questions without necessarily running trials, um, maybe, um, you know, one other possibility and, and certainly the FDA is, uh, in their, um, in the regulations they've talked about, you know, allowing, um, the use of real world data to, to get secondary indications, uh, on treatments that have already been approved for other, um, situations, but, uh, how is it in Europe on the European side and in, in, in terms of um, cost of medications? I know that certainly Europe does a much better job of um, assessing the value of the therapies, um, you know, to determine whether or not they'll be used by different health, uh, whether or not they'll be paid by government health plans. But Yeah, I think that is um, a raising uh, issue and I think my perception is, uh, for example, with um, ISA and CS, there's much more kind of similar thinking coming through in CS, and I- I'm pretty sure the the systems that we have 
in place in Europe uh, that look into budget impacts, look into cost effectiveness analyses. All these different things will probably play a role in the US at some point as well, because um, you need to justify the drug costs. And um, for us statisticians, that means we need to um, be able to much better explain these drug costs, much better come up with reasonable prices for medications, um, justify them, have good um, ways to show the value of the drug in the marketplace. Um, and I think that will continue to be a topic throughout the life cycle of the product. Because as you see new trucks entering the market space, as you see um, uh, generics coming up, as you see biosimilars coming up, um, there will be lots of lots of different uh, changes in there. And I think we as statisticians need to know what's going on there so that we can take that into account and give within the company good advice as to how to best select the drug prices, how to best maybe, you know, uh, come up with a paper performance kind of models to, to help our uh, cross-functional partners to have the right evidence that they need to um, best work with the uh, health insurance companies so that they can best allocate their budget to have the best outcome overall. So I think these kind of discussions will continue and um, especially with, you know, uh, biologics, I think, because I think there's so much uh, movement and there's, there's, you know, um, companies that after they suppose similars enter the space, um, originators actually decrease prices quite significantly because they want to retain their market share. And that hasn't been done traditionally and let's say for small molecules usually. So it's, um, these kind of things are fundamentally changing of, uh, of how we work. So it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting area and another area where, where we as statisticians can actually play a role. Yeah, I, I agree. And so another example too, you, you brought up sort of payers and insurance companies. Um, so I think, the whole the the example with hepatitis C uh, virus maybe ten years ago and um, the treatments being expensive and uh, you know essentially getting a functional cure of the virus um, I think you know there was certainly a lot of challenges with getting um, coverage for um, the individuals who who wanted to take these therapies and. I think now a lot of these payers are looking at um, NASH disease, so um, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, uh, fatty liver disease, essentially. And so looking at all these individuals who who may or may not have, you know, what we think of as fatty liver disease, um, and it's all tied up with diabetes and obesity, and you know, this is another chronic disease that may require a medication and trying to understand the benefits of the drug and, you know, the costs of these medications, uh, particularly when, you know, there may be a large segment of the population taking it. I, I think it's certainly 
has a lot of people thinking about the values of these therapies and, and what's reasonable um, given um, the benefits that are um, that are able people are able to get from the medications, particularly when you know one of the most effective ways of of dealing with um, diabetes and obesity and, and and Nash disease is uh, exercise and diet, um, and and they don't have the costs associated with them. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this example plays out uh, in the near future, um, since there are a lot of medications for NASH uh, that are on the horizon for for approvals. Okay, thanks so much. We have already crossed the one-hour mark in terms of our recording time. And usually we are trying to get below a certain <laughs> number of minutes. But I think today we had such a broad topic in terms of trends in the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm pretty sure as a listener, you may recognize this, maybe this trend or that trend that we haven't touched on, but obviously we don't want this to be an eight hour show or something like this. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I think we, we touched on a variety of different, uh, really interesting topics. So, so we talked a lot about real world evidence as this uh, really big trend and what it means in terms of our statisticians knowing about uh, things like probability matching, for example, or propensity of scoring, or um, how we could augment RCTs with real-world evidence. We also talked about uh, data coming from different sources in our big data environments that we need to um, have different approaches that we can't have the same um rigor in terms of data quality and these or data cleanliness, uh, these kind of things. We talked about data from devices and variables, how that allows us to enter into completely different areas uh, of our research in, in terms of having different endpoints, different ways to um, measure um, progress over time. In terms of big data, we also talked about um, all the unstructured data and the text data that is out there that requires natural language processing, um, an area where lots of statisticians, including myself, have very, very little knowledge in and um, where we can actually learn a lot from uh, data scientists, uh, which is another topic that we touched on, um, that they maybe come with a very, very different tool set from a statistical point of view than we are usually usually employing and that there's a lot of learnings that we can have from, from both sides. And then in the end, there's also um, other areas where we as statisticians can tap into uh, in terms of, for example, business analytics, um, understanding data that is, has nothing to do with uh, biology. Finally, we talked a little bit about the, the increase of prices uh, that we see here and there, um, and that we as statisticians can help there if we are really good in cost-effectiveness models, understanding how budget impact models work, and, and these kind of things. And with that uh, summary, I would like to say thank you so much, Richard, for, for coming to us and having this really, really nice recording with us. Yeah, thanks, Alexander and Benjamin, for having me. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I'm, I'm so happy to see uh, the success of your podcast. And 
see how you're sharing um, all these different kinds of uh, leadership and statistical ideas with a, a whole new generation of statisticians. It, it's great. And I hope uh, more statisticians can reach out to the community and, and put something uh, as nice together as, as you guys have done. So great job. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot for joining. It's really good having you here today. Yeah, okay. thanks. I uh, really enjoyed it. And sorry again for being late. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, I'm really excited because we are in the midst of starting the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. And the card is still open if you listen to this episode quite soon after it gets released because we are very, very soon closing the card to have all the students together for our leadership program. And then very soon we'll start with the leadership program. The leadership program is designed to strengthen your leadership skills in order to maximize your impact at work. And it's for supervisors and also and especially for non-supervisors. So even if you don't have direct reports, this is the right uh, program for you. It's set up so you can do it very, very easily um, on top of your day job because it's a mixture of webinars, podcasts and moderated small group discussions. And most of the to-dos are really within your job so you can directly apply the learnings. In terms of time commitments, it's just about one to two hours per week that you need to plan in addition to um, have the content. Um, but most of the actions will really be in the day-to-day -day work. And I get a lot of really, really good feedback about the, the program. And um, If you haven't listened to it, just scroll back to a couple of uh, episodes earlier where a couple of students are actually speaking about what they achieved through the program, uh, what they benefited on. And uh, it's, it's just really, really amazing to me how mindset shifts, how the um, getting better leadership tools help them to become better at work and have a actually also more fun at work and, and a better motivation at work. So um, it would be awesome to have you in the program as well. So um, today we are talking with Richard. Richard is a podcaster himself. He runs the um, ASA Biofarm podcast that you can check out when you go to the show notes. And uh, he's currently also the chair of the um, biofarm section of the American Statistical Association. Um, he has actually invited Benjamin and myself as podcast interview guests on his podcast already. So now we are returning that and, and we are together talking about lots of current and future trends within the pharma organization. And we are touching on a wide range of different topics. Um, I've also linked a corresponding article that I found in the news in the, um, in the show notes. So just go to the effectivestatistician.com 
uh, to find the additional things there. So stay tuned for this really, really nice uh, interview. It got pretty long, but that's because there's just so much things happening at, uh, at the moment. And um, please stay to the end. There's a lot of really good, interesting stuff in there. This podcast is created in, in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Just visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career. Also, check out the homepage of the Effective Statistician Leadership Program at theeffectivestatistician.com dot uh, com slash course and there you'll find all the details of the leadership program and I think this is a really really nice program to help you manage to through the change that is coming up and to help manage all the different possibilities all the different innovations that uh, we'll um, have in the future and which we discussed today in this episode so, as usual, my final words are reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.